Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 94, The Siege of Vienna. Now, no new patrons since the last episode, but as always, consider pledging if you have the ability, or even if you don't, reach out, let me know what you think, criticisms, suggestions, ideas, whatever it is, I love hearing from you all. So thanks to everyone who have reached, who's reached out recently. Now, let's get right into it, because I don't want to wait at all. I've been waiting for years to cover these events, and we're finally here, the Siege of Vienna. So last time, we started off with a massive Ottoman invasion of Austria, which was thwarted by a surprise attack at a river crossing. The war was then quickly ended, allowing the Ottomans to finally wrap up the longest siege in history, defeat Venice and annex Crete. The Ottomans then acquired a new vassal, the Cossack state in modern Ukraine. Before that new relationship dragged them into a war with Poland and then a war with Russia. Both wars were mixed bags, which ultimately won the Ottomans more territory, on their northeastern frontier. Meanwhile, the Austrian Habsburgs were struggling with putting down two rebellions by their Protestant Hungarian subjects, inviting the Ottomans in to win their independence, as Ottoman vassals of course. This finally escalated into a full-blown war as the Ottomans gathered the greatest force in their history and marched the many, many kilometers to the gates of Vienna. And that's where we begin today. It is July the 14th, and the Ottoman army has just arrived at the gates. Now, as I mentioned last time, the city had truly impressive walls, ample artillery, but only around 11,000 soldiers and 5,000 volunteers defending it. Facing these 16,000 poor souls was around 170,000 Ottomans and their allies a more than 10 to 1 ratio of attackers to defenders. The Austrian plan was simply for the city to hold out long enough for a relief force to save them. The problem was that this force was being assembled from Austrians, several German principalities, and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. The Pope himself was working on negotiations to create this holy league, but negotiations were taking time, time the Viennese did not have. Still, it was no surprise that the Viennese residents refused the Ottoman demand to surrender. A smaller town south of Vienna had recently surrendered, but the population was massacred anyways, so the citizens of the city knew they truly had no choice. This knowledge no doubt strengthened their resolve. Now, prior to the Ottomans reaching the city, the Austrians had employed the classic siege tactic of clearing out any potential cover within striking distance of their artillery. If the Ottomans wished to approach the walls, they would have to cross a no-man's land, a killing field, which could be filled with shells and shot at a moment's notice. To counter this, Karim Mustafa Pasha employed a tried-and-true Ottoman tactic used in many sieges prior. 
Trenches were dug to allow soldiers to approach the walls while others dug tunnels underneath the walls to eventually detonate them and open a breach. To counter this, large wooden stakes, which made up an outer wooden wall, were dug into the ground, causing weeks worth of delay for the Ottomans to dig around and through them. Now these delays were dangerous. It had taken the Ottomans months to get their army here, and they had both the oncoming winter and the prospect of a relief force hanging over their heads as they methodically dug their way towards the walls. Things were no easier inside the city. The Ottomans had created a tight siege, meaning as the weeks and months dragged on, food became increasingly scarce for the defenders. Plague also ravaged both the citizens and defenders of Vienna, as well as the Ottomans themselves. As hunger and disease took its toll, the commander of Vienna ordered any sentry caught sleeping on duty to be shot. Clearly, whichever side you were on, this was a terrible siege. Still, while typically the Ottomans would have attempted some all-out assaults, they held back this time, waiting for their carefully laid plans to knock down a portion of the walls and for the city to possibly surrender without so much blood being spilled. The Ottomans, in fact, didn't want the city to be sacked. They wanted it captured as is, which in part helps explain their relative caution. But by August, the Ottomans had been at it for over a month, and relieving forces were finally beginning to arrive. The siege of Vienna was about to give way to the Battle of Vienna. But for the time being, it was looking pretty bad for the city. The Ottomans had successfully taken one of the major defensive points on the walls, blowing up several bastions with sappers, and creating a huge 12-meter gap in the occupying walls, whose sections... On those sections, the defenders were beginning to lose hope and moving towards the inner walls of the city in anticipation of losing the outer walls entirely. But just around then, the Imperial Army defeated an Ottoman force about five kilometers from Vienna, but didn't attack right away. Instead, they set up camp there, not wanting to contract the plague which was ravaging both the attackers and defenders. And so from their more distant position, they instead raided the Ottoman forces as they waited the arrival of a Polish army. The Polish heavy cavalry was having trouble moving through the terrain, and so it was late to arrive. It took at least a week or two for this to happen. On September 6th, Polish forces finally linked up with Cossacks and troops from the German principalities of Saxony, Bavaria, Baden, Franconia, and Schwabia. Yet even this grand combined army numbered just 70 to 80,000 soldiers, just about half of the 150,000 Ottomans who remained. They've lost at this point about 20,000 to both battles and attrition from disease. The Holy Alliance army was commanded by the Polish king, Jan III Sobieski. As this force slowly moved into position to face the Ottomans, They knew one of their first orders of business was to ensure the desperate defenders of Vienna knew that they were there, and so to ensure that they would not surrender at just this critical moment. But they should have already faced opposition at this point. The Ottomans had entrusted the defense of their rear to the Khan of Crimea and his 30 to 40,000 strong army. Yet 
The Tatars had refused to attack the Holy League forces up to this point, missing a crucial opportunity to strike at them while they were crossing the Danube. Always a vulnerable moment for any army. And so the relief army was able to move into position on a hill north of Vienna and light large bonfires to announce their presence to the city's defenders. But at 4 a.m. on September the 12th, as they were deploying and before the Polish cavalry had gotten into position, the Ottomans decided to mount a full attack to disrupt their preparations. But one element was missing in the attack. The 18,000 Janissaries of the Ottoman army. They remained back at the city preparing to detonate the 10 bombs they had placed below the inner walls, ready to storm it the moment they went off. As the remaining Ottomans attacked the Holy League forces up on the hill, they were able to use their position to push the Ottomans back, eventually taking two towns north of Vienna during the fighting, as they continued to await the arrival of the Polish cavalry. The Ottomans were pushed back, but were still holding firm, eagerly awaiting the sound of the detonation of those bombs. But the sound never came. The defenders had miraculously managed to find and defuse each one. While the Janissaries waited, the battle in their rear still raged. The Holy League forces made slow progress throughout the day, pushing the Ottomans past their fortifications as the Janissaries decided to basically end their wait and make a full attack on Vienna. It was now getting to about five in the afternoon, and the Ottomans were pulling back, Though with the Janissaries in Vienna at their backs, they soon wouldn't have anywhere more to pull back to. Just at this moment, the Polish cavalry, including the famed winged hussars, finally arrived. 18 to 20,000 of the world's most elite heavy cavalry, led by King Sobieski himself, rushed down the hill towards the Ottomans. 80,000 hoofbeats made the ground tremble as if an earthquake were rocking the battlefield. The Ottomans may have vastly outnumbered their foes, but after 13 hours of being pushed back, knowing their bombs had failed to detonate, they were doubtless exhausted. And this was the moment when they faced the largest cavalry charge in human history. The horsemen cut through the Ottoman lines and headed towards Kara Mustafa Pasha's command center, forcing him to personally flee. As the Viennese garrison saw their opportunity and sallied out to attack the Ottomans from behind as well. Within three hours, it was all over. The collapse of the mighty Ottoman force was complete, and the relief army entered Vienna in triumph. The Holy League forces found tremendous loot in the abandoned Ottoman camp, as King Sobieski himself wrote, quote, Ours are treasures unheard of, tents, sheep, cattle, and no small number of camels. It is victory as no one ever knew before. The enemy now completely ruined everything lost for them. They must run for their sheer lives. General Starhemberg hugged and kissed me and called me his savior. End quote. The Ottoman army immediately began a slow and humiliating retreat back towards Constantinople. Along the way, the voivoda of Moldavia, George Dukas, was captured and taken to Poland, where he died in prison a year later. The voivoda of Wallachia made it back, but we now know 
that he had actually been feeding intelligence about the campaign and sabotaging Ottoman war efforts the entire time. The Ottoman court historian, alive and writing when the battle occurred, called it the worst defeat since the empire had been created 384 years earlier. Of the 170,000 soldiers who began the campaign, around 135,000 returned. The loss of roughly 35,000 soldiers killed or captured was hardly a death blow to the empire, but the loss of equipment, the loss of face, and the loss of the last great chance to take Vienna and use it as a forward operating base from which the Ottomans could expand into Central Europe was now over. For the people of Austria and southern Germany, while there was still concern of an Ottoman counterattack, the overwhelming fear of foreign invasion now slowly dissipated. Still, I have to point out that this battle is often dangerously misunderstood as a great clash of religions and civilizations. But I thought historian Dan Herbjörgsrund I think he's uh, from Norway, so I'm just giving that a wild guess. But historian Dag explains why this is not really a correct interpretation and how some of the kind of myth-making of the past several centuries has affected this. He writes, quote, So the Battle of Vienna wasn't a war between the cross and the crescent. It was not a clash of civilizations, a mighty Christian victory over Islam. Rather, Sunni Muslim Tatars were vital in helping the Catholic Polish king on one side, just as Lutheran Hungarians were allied with the Sunni Muslim Sultan on the other. The year 683, in the end, was just another year of battles over power and influence between the great states of Europe. Loyalties crossed all borders of faith and ethnicity. Sobieski and his allies never saved Europe, nor Christianity despite the claims of plaques, textbooks, and encyclopedias. Rather, the ruler of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was Europe's foremost savior of Muslim life and culture in Northern Europe. The Battle of Vienna was a multicultural drama, an example of the complex and paradoxical twists of European history. There has never been such a thing as the United Christian Armies of Europe. End quote. So you've heard me say this before, right? That This Ottoman army, as all the Ottoman armies, was full of Christians, both people still practicing the faith and Janissaries, of course, who were born Christians. These were indeed always multi-religious, multi-ethnic armies, and the states in which they represented, well, at various times had more or less allegiance to Christianity. But I would say that in the broadest sense, believing that essentially any European state fought for a religion above all else is, I think, generally incorrect. Whether you're talking about the Ottomans or the Poles or the Austrians, their own state power and their kingdoms and empires, I think, essentially always took precedence. And when Christianity or Islam could serve as a a functional tool to unite various peoples or states or empires together to fight, it was used as such. But We can't look back at these particular events and pretend they had a meaning that they really didn't, particularly in a world we live in today where nefarious actors will use events like the Battle of Vienna to justify horrendous acts. So I want to give kind of both a little bit of both sides of that bit of interpretation of the historical meaning of Vienna before we move on. 
So beyond the greater meaning of the battle, the immediate aftermath saw the victorious allies building on their success. Because indeed, the war was not over. In fact, it had only just begun. It may not have been clear at the time, but Vienna marked the beginning of the Third Polish-Ottoman War. As the Ottoman army pulled back, it was pursued by the force led by Sobieski. Three weeks after their loss, the Ottomans camped at Parkane, now in Slovakia, about 200 kilometers from Vienna and just across the Danube from the Hungarian fortress of Estragon. There, they received assistance from Imre Tokoli, the prince of Upper Hungary, essentially the Ottoman vassal running the Ottoman-controlled portion of Hungary. When the Polish-led force reached the Ottomans there, their commanders cautioned the king to let the army rest, but Sobieski wanted to attack the Ottomans immediately using his cavalry. So, about 5,000 cavalry moved towards the Ottomans when they were suddenly attacked by Ottoman cavalry, which pushed them back towards imperial lines. This hasty attack cost them about 1,000 of these precious cavalrymen. Now, both sides rested the next day, but the day after, more imperial troops arrived. Both sides now lined up for a proper battle. The Ottomans rushed forward to attack the first line of imperial infantry, but were outflanked by the Polish cavalry, leading to another 9,000 casualties. The Ottomans now pulled back further, leaving the imperial forces to lay siege to the fortress of Estragon. By the time the Ottomans reached Belgrade, winter was settling in. As they moved back, imperial forces essentially followed them and slowly reconquered Hungary. Once in Belgrade, word came from Sultan Mehmet that Kara Mustafa Pasha was to be executed for his failure. The expedition to Vienna was his proposal. And not only had that failed, but Hungary now seemed lost. He was hung in Belgrade with a silk rope, as was the tradition for high-ranking officials condemned to death. His final words were, Am I to die? Well, as God pleases. He was the first vizier of the Koprulu to meet such a fate with his two predecessors having brought great victories and success to the empire and died of old age. Still, the family would only be out of power for a short time. Yet this was a major blow to their prestige. But for the moment, it was now winter, and as 1683 turned into 1684, imperial forces seemed to have remained around Estragon, with their next target being Buda itself. In March of 1684, before the year's campaign even started, the Holy League was finally formally formed between the Austrians, Poles, and Venetians. Venice joining the League meant that the Third Polish-Ottoman War was now being joined by the Sixth Ottoman-Venetian War, also called the Morean War. It had been just 15 years since the end of the Cretan War with Venice, but clearly the victory at Vienna gave them the confidence to take take on the Ottomans again so soon after their last defeat. Interestingly, despite this being their sixth war, this is also the first time the Venetians had actually declared war on the Ottomans instead of the reverse. Now the plan was for the Venetians to hold off the Ottoman navy and generally force them to fight on multiple fronts instead of focusing their efforts solely on Hungary. 
The Venetian navy and land forces were in terrible condition, no surprise considering how recent their loss in Crete was. But, importantly, the state of Ottoman forces was even worse. But before the Venetians could make their first move, imperial and Polish forces finally moved on Buda in June. They began with taking Estragom and smashing its walls and killing its garrison before plundering the city. Subsequently, they moved along the Danube, taking Visegrad before moving on to Vach. There, they met 17,000 Ottoman soldiers under Kara Mustafa Pasha's replacement as Grand Vizier. The Ottomans had well-prepared defensive fortifications, but the imperial forces still managed to eject them and take Vach within a day. On June 30th, just 17 days after they began their offensive up the Danube at Estragom, imperial forces entered Pest, which had just been burned by the retreating Ottomans. Now, for those unfamiliar with the geography of modern Budapest, Pest is on the southern bank of the Danube and is quite flat. Buda, on the northern bank, is very hilly and has a powerful fortress. No wonder the Ottomans abandoned Pest to focus on defending the far more easily defended Buda. And so the imperial army of 43,000 began to besiege the 7,000 Ottomans holed up in the fortress at Buda. Within five days of the siege's beginning, imperial forces took Buda's lower town. But lacking the soldiers to garrison it, they simply burned it down as they continued to try and fail to take the main fortress. While they kept up the pressure, the Venetians began their own offensive against the Ottomans elsewhere, striking from their base at Corfu to the nearby island of Lefkada to lay siege to a fortress there. Within just two weeks, the fortress surrendered. The Venetian forces then progressed onto the Greek mainland, capturing towns and triggering anti-Ottoman uprisings in the area. Mobs attacked and burned Muslim villages, killing many inhabitants. By the end of August, the Venetians and their local allies were entirely in control of a swath of central Greece, with the Ottomans only holding on to two fortresses in the area. By September, the imperial forces besieging Buda were getting worn down, but soon reinforcements arrived and morale shot back up. But just a week and a half later, an Ottoman relief army itself arrived. This force was unable to relieve the Buda fortress, but the imperial troops also couldn't manage to defeat them in the field, and so the Ottoman relief force continued to harass the besiegers. By the end of October, the lack of progress and increasingly poor weather conditions forced the imperial army to withdraw for the winter. They had lost between 24 and 30,000 men of their original 43,000 strong force. Disease and fighting had taken a terrible toll, nearly as bad as the Ottoman losses in the Battle and Siege of Vienna. But while this was a major setback on the imperial front, the Venetians were continuing to make progress in Greece. They took some settlements and fortresses on the northern shore of the Peloponnesus, by the end of the fighting season had established a firm stronghold in western Greece. Still, there too, disease was rife and casualties were high. So just how these gains will face the inevitable Ottoman counterattack, well, awaited to be seen. Also, while I couldn't find any real details of it, there was fighting on the Polish-Ottoman border during 1684. 
It seems this fighting largely occurred in Ottoman territory, conquered during the previous Polish-Ottoman War. So I would guess that the Moldavian uprising led the Poles to go on the offensive there. I don't think I maybe mentioned that, but once the Moldavian Voivoda was captured, there was a minor uprising, which is going to kind of play out a little bit more in the future, by the boyars who saw this as a great opportunity. And well, that's where I'm going to leave things today. The Holy League has won a great victory at Vienna, reconquering much of Hungary, but their offensive has stalled after the failed siege of Buda. Still, the Venetian front is going very well, as fighting on the Polish border near Moldavia is also stretching the Ottomans thin as they have to fight on three fronts. After having lost tens of thousands of soldiers in the fighting of 1683 and 1684, time will tell how the Ottomans will be able to respond, and indeed how the Balkan peoples will respond to this sudden period of Ottoman weakness. In other words, uprisings are coming. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. Like us on Facebook, leave us a review, you know what to do. And as always, feel free to support us on Patreon or just get in touch through the website. Anyways, I'll see you all in the next one.